Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where history is examined and discussed through books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask that great question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 462nd show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Sophia White, professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame who is going to talk to us about the voices of the enslaved, loves, labor, and longing in French Louisiana. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's musical theme is Kayla's Theme, which is written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Dave Baker. To begin with, we'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Sophia White. Thank you for joining us, Sophia. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And you go by Sophie, so we'll make sure I'll get that from here on out. We call this first segment of the show Fadruk to Nauren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little bit of a premises on what the subject is about. Can you start us off with some basic information of French Louisiana in the 1700s, please? Yes, delighted to. Um, this is almost the, the, the other. Most uh, people know a lot more about the 13 English colonies, and this is a totally different territory, but... French Louisiana occupied the central two-thirds of what is now today the the modern U.S., the the geographical boundary. So it's a huge area on which very few Frenchmen arrived. Um, But when they did, um, they, um, within quick succession, had uh, very extensive interactions with the Native American communities they found. uh, And those were very different depending on the geographic area and and the, the needs and interests of those Native American groups, but they also brought slaves starting in 1719 from West Africa. They enslaved both Native Americans and Africans that they brought from West Africa. So from 1719 to 1731, that's the big period when the French bring in um, those from Africa. After 1731, there are almost no ships, which means that population becomes... um, uh, reproduces through natural reproduction, but there aren't many, many, very many new arrivals. So we have a, an interesting case study um, for those populations. Now, that's all very good and very generic. The book, and what I'm trying to do with it, is to have us think about the fact that we have a colony um, that practices slavery, and in the 18th century, these are people, these individuals, are people about whom we know very little because, by the usual standards of historians, they don't leave written records. Um, there is no rule against literacy uh, for the enslaved in Louisiana, but that doesn't mean they have access to it. So they're not leaving the, the sorts of written records that historians tend to love. And what I show in this book is that, in fact, we have something quite extraordinary in the archives of Louisiana. So, indeed, they are written sources, but they are written accounts of oral testimony that enslaved individuals gave in court in the 18th century. Uh, Louisiana ceases being French in 1769, and that's my cutoff. And so I want to say a couple of things about that oral testimony. These are in in trials, in criminal trials, where the enslaved appear um, as accused, but also as witnesses or, you know, bystanders who saw something happening and occasionally also as victims, including victims of uh, violence by um, French perpetrators. And their testimony is extraordinary, and this is for two reasons, or at least the archive of testimony is extraordinary, but the testimony is too. And this is to do with French law. French law stipulates 
that, so bear with me here, French law stipulates that confession is the queen of, um, of evidence because only the guilty knows that they're guilty. Now, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but because of that, it means that when someone testifies in court, they can talk for as long as they want. And so the testimony isn't, did you do this? Answer, no. They can go on um, to tangents and add details that have nothing to do with the questions that they've been asked. Not only can they do it, but they do it. And so this was one of my great findings in going over this archival material is that deponents were not sticking to the question asked. They were going off, and those tangents I'll say a little bit more about are so interesting. The second point about French law that is so important is that when a deponent talks in that way and adds details, there is a scribe in the courtroom who has to write it down. And he writes it down in shorthand, then he goes off, produces a longhand version, then reads it back to the deponent who gets to, to say, no, no, I didn't say that, I said this and fixes it. So we know a couple of things from this. We know that the archive that we have today is a very accurate reflection of what was said in court. Now, there are some changes, and I talk about it in, in the book, um, Voices of the Enslaved, um, but it's a pretty accurate version. So we get a very strong sense of their voices. And I want to give you um, a, a couple of examples, um, and then I'll, I'll revert back to you. So I've been working on these archives many, 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 many years. Many of us have. And one day I was rereading the uh, testimony by this young man, Etienne. And he's asked a question and he starts answering it. And the scribe, the scribe says, you know, writes down his answer. And then the scribe says, and then Etienne said without being asked. And he goes on another page <laughs> reading it. Thinking, oh, it's nothing to do with the question or the court case. Um, and then the scribe says, and then Etienne said, again, without being asked. And he writes it down again, and it happens a third time. And then Etienne said, on his own account, and he writes it down a third time. Um, that was the clue to me that, that people did keep speaking sometimes, not always, but many often, and that it was worthwhile following those tangents, because that was the, the second element that I realized, is that in those tangents and in that testimony, there is a very repeated and frequent attempt to show themselves as, as humanized and to express um, their, their suffering sometimes, but actually more often the suffering of, of others, of loved ones, to talk about their attachments to people, their squabbles with other people, their attachments to places, their sense of humor comes through their emotions, their longing. Um, but also that when you look at the text of that testimony, you can see these moments where um, there's dialogue in there, where the scribe is obviously writing so quickly, he's just writing down the dialogue. There are, um, there are not many, but there are moments when you see Creole um, spoken, you see flashes of humor, you see... Um, dialect coming through, metaphors, figures of speech. And so those texts, you, you very, if you let yourself hear it, you hear the people speaking. And that is just the most extraordinary evidence to have for the 18th century um, when it is an enslaved person speaking, because we have very few places where that sort of evidence comes through. So I will leave that there. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Sophia White, Professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And we're talking about her book, Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labor, and Longing in French Louisiana. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, why don't you start us off? All right, thank you. Yeah, Sophie, you mentioned that this took place under French colonial judicial law, and you gave us some information about the framework of the testimony. So I wonder, was there testimony like in one day or one sitting, especially if they could go on and on, I mean, talk about their um, experiences without necessarily uh, specifically answering a question. Uh, give us a, an idea of what the framework of that testimony uh, was like. Thank you, Terry. Um, one other thing uh, that I should tell you is that um, in these courts, the, the judges make the decisions, not juries. They are inquisitorial courts, so they're closed to the public. And in Louisiana, there are no lawyers, which is actually merely because um, the, the king did not want frivolous lawsuits to take place in in, uh, in Louisiana, and so there are no lawyers. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't coaching, directing, etc., right? I don't want to, to suggest that's the case. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very particular environment. And um, the, the testimony of, um, you know, a single deponent would, would take place in one day, but there are multiple opportunities. So, and again, this is to do What's interesting is that what happens in a a court that is prosecuting an enslaved person, for example, it follows the same procedure and the same rules as in any French court. So you have to trigger interrogation. You might have multiple ones. You will have witnesses. You might have a confrontation between a witness and uh, and the the deponent or the accused. Um, So that can make a court case actually take um, days or weeks. Um, and and sometimes they do for the more complex ones. So they do go on, which means there is opportunity to change testimony. There is opportunity to sway. Um, what is interesting is that the questions are set up by the prosecutor before, and the, the defendant never knows what those questions are. and doesn't know what, what the investigation has found. But, the, but they always stick to the questions. <laughs> they don't sort of deviate from them. But perhaps in the second interrogation, the prosecutor might come up with something else based on testimony. So it's sort of, sort of a bit like a time lag um, process, but it does give this opportunity to, to speak. Clearly, uh, within reason, um, I'm sure that the courts have ways to, to stop for lunch, for example. Um, but you do see these tangents. And so with the book, what I did was sort of suspend, suspend my interest in the court case itself. And that was very conscious and very deliberate because the testimony doesn't tell us if something that's said in court happened or not. So I did an awful lot of contextual analysis and an awful lot of other archives to see if I could corroborate or not some of those findings or contextualize them. 
But it doesn't tell us if, you know, well, I said to him, you know, I said to him, you can't, you know, we only kneel before um, God is one of the comments. You know, we have no idea of knowing if this deponent, if she actually said that to a young man who was about to attack her. But I know she said it in court. And so I, the process was to suspend, you know, empirical truth. Did this happen? Did it not happen? And look instead at what was being said and trying to use that to think about what it tells us about the lived experience and the perspective and the point of view of the person giving the testimony. So it was an important flip early on in writing the book to, to, to think about it in those terms. Ed. Thanks, John. Um, Sophie, you've mentioned that, um, you know, there's no lawyers present. Um, so should we infer from that that the defendant is effectively representing themselves? Uh, it, I suppose I don't want to get into the legal oh, framework because English law and what we, is, is so different, and that's our language we're using right now. Um, but, yes, they would, be, they would be on their own. They would be on their own. Yeah. Oh, okay, so in the book, now that you've um, kind of established that, um, are there instances where, I mean, when you're talking about tangents, you have individuals up there that are going to defend themselves, uh, but I'm guessing that they didn't have a lot of time to prep. I'm guessing that they have no time to look at the courts and say, oh, wow, you know, these discussions and tangents might be in my favor if I can do these correctly. So were there instances where you have individuals trying to follow the pattern that you've established and it's a disaster? So I think it's less straightforward than that. We okay. can presume We can presume a few things. One of them is that um, it's not in the interest of most slave owners to have their enslaved people if they're if they're the defendant right if they're accused right. to, to be in court so you know they probably could visit them in prison and give them an idea i mean there's that sort of coaching that might take place and and occasionally you see glimpses of that um we also here have sentient beings who um are are faced and having to, to think on their feet um and having to think about strategy etc but i have to tell you that most of what comes through is you know, our assumption is that someone in a position like this, and remember, not everyone is a defendant. Some of them are victims and witnesses, right? So they have different stake in that in the court case. Um, they're not at risk. Um, but but our, our first instinct is to think, oh, they're at risk. They're going to be strategic, and they're, they're going to do everything they can to get out of it. And I'm, I don't find that. I find it in a couple of court cases but in far fewer than you would think. It could be because the overwhelming weight of slavery is such that they know that they have no, no chance, right? Everything is, all the decks are stacked against them. Um, but there's something else that happens, and I think we need to remember that this is oral deposition. It's, it's why it's different from a slave narrative that's been written, you know, um, over many years. It's oral, it's immediate. That means you've got adrenaline involved. You may think you know what you're going to say when you get into that court and something may, may flip or something may, may turn you off or jolt you. And this is why it's so interesting to look at those tangents because they, they have very little to do with defending themselves. It is, I have a, um, I'm, as an aside for the book, I have, I'm delighted to announce that uh, early this summer we'll launch a digital humanities project with the Omohundra Institute on that will feature four uh, trials in their entirety. And, um, and one of those 
includes the first known reference to me, at any rate, of voodoo. And the court is very interested in finding out about voodoo. The deponent just wants to talk about the suffering that his wife has been subjected to by their slave owner. That's the kind of time that's going to do nothing for his court case. It's so important to him. And it's so important for him to say it, to narrate it. And let's not forget to be heard in a place where, you know, these enslaved people are not used to being heard in that way. And so I think we really need to be, we sort of need to stop ourselves and stop from just making assumptions about what's happening and follow the trails of that deposition. Terry. Yes, Sophie, I'd like to know more about the demographics of the area at that time during these uh, testimonies. Were enslaved people, did they outnumber the French at this time? And were they treated in the same way according to the legal system or not? Uh, they, they outnumber by two to one. It depends when, right? Because the, the trials sort of range over a 30-year period. Um, and by the 1760s, um, two to one, uh, approximately 10,000 enslaved Africans, um, half the number of whites. So we're really talking about small populations here, which is why it's so extraordinary that proportionately we have so much, um, so much material, so many voices. We have the testimony of approximately 150 individuals through the archives, and which is, which is, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that we have even that many. Um, so um, those are the, the demographic numbers. Um, we can fine-tune that a little bit in terms of more um, males are on the neighboring plantations to New Orleans, for example, versus within the, the city itself, what we think of as the French Quarter. Um, but a lot of movement between those. So some of the things that will be documented in, in these is, you know, well, I was going, you know, to the dance at Monsieur Fleurier's last night when this happened, you know, said one witness. And, and so you get a sense of a lot of movement going on in that, in that area um, between the, the town and the, the neighboring areas, both through water, on horseback, by foot, etc. Okay. if that helps. And, I mean, in terms of the law, the, the French... Empires are very um, sort of centralized ones. So the laws are um, slightly different in, in different colonies, but they're certainly for the slave code for Louisiana, it's imposed from France. And it is also from there that they impose the rule that court procedure will follow the 1670 criminal code of France, which is how one can chart <laughs> how accurately they follow that, that law. Okay. Ed. Thanks, John. Um, Professor, what was the geographic distribution of these courts in French Louisiana? Obviously, we would have them in what we know today as the state of Louisiana. Um, but how far flung were they? Um, was St. Louis also a place where these uh, trials took place? So the, the main archive that I use is the one in New Orleans, and that's where the Superior Council of Louisiana sat. Um, and um, from the moment that enslaved people arrive. So all, all trials, there's not a separate slave court. Anyone who goes to, to criminal court is in that space. But each um, post commander can also um, oversee a trial in his jurisdiction. So um, the, the trial I mentioned with a young man who keeps, you know, adding without being asked is in Natchitoches, uh, Louisiana, in the 1740s. 
Um, I have also um, the other great repository is for the Illinois country. And you mentioned St. Louis, but St. Louis is founded just as the French are leaving. So it's a sort of in-between, it becomes Spanish. Um, and, but uh, the other sites in the Illinois country are Kaskaskia and Fel de Chaff, which are very important for the French. It's, it's where flour is grown, it's where hogs are, are um, grown, and there is important um, slavery, enslavement, both of Native Americans and Africans up there. So in those courts, and there is in the book uh, a second trial, a, a rather sad case of infanticide, that originates in the Illinois country. It would have been adjudicated there, except that they cannot determine what happens. So they ship uh, the poor woman down to New Orleans, where the case sort of has another life. So they have that mechanism, but there is no appeals court beyond what happens in New Orleans. Um, from the testimony, as you said, of individuals that were either that were slaves, that were witnesses, or um, helping with prosecution or defendants, did it kind of present um, an image of how some slave owners treated um, their slaves and their plantation and the world differently from others. Uh, you always hear that some were were more strict and more violent or some were more cordial and forgiving. Did any of that come out of this uh, these documentation these documents? I think the, the overwhelming feeling is the ubiquity of violence and punishment the enslaved it's it's everywhere and it is it's not just everywhere but it is always hanging in the air it's always a possibility um it is alluded to quite a lot um you know it's a it's a difficult thing to talk about since they i i I think we can be fairly sure that anything that's said in court even though during the courtroom process it's it's in secret um that much of this will leak out afterwards um, but they, they talk about violence. It's ubiquitous. Uh, it includes sexual violence, although that is talked about less and certainly never prosecuted. Um, but we find evidence for that, too. In terms of your second question, and this has been of great interest to me, and in fact, I'm, I'm starting to write a new book that is going to be called His Master's Grace, which is on extrajudicial punishment, but also the performance of mercy and for asking forgiveness. And I think that we have to be careful about something like that, tripping us up and making us think that some people were more forgiving, etc., than others. Clearly there are some people who are absolute sadists. And it is, there is one document in particular that shows how, you know, everyone in the area knew this particular overseer was a sadist and they tried their best to stop it, but they didn't really try their best. They had other mechanisms, but they were shocked by it. But it's the other quotidian violence. Um, and, and there are protocols, and I find this over and over and over again, where there is a mechanism for a runaway, say, to ask forgiveness of his master and to be allowed back in. What we don't know, of course, is does that forgiveness come with, um, you know, other punishments, um, privations, privations hurting their, their loved ones, which is the, the, which is the difficult thing. You know, it's always the loved ones, go through the loved ones. So I think on that basis, I would be hesitant to say that, you know, some are kinder or easier than others because the system perpetuates uh, a daily regime of violence. And if enslaved people find ways to... Um, work within that system, it is still within the rules established by the enslavers, which is, you know, beg me for forgiveness and maybe I will. 
um, the power dynamic has not changed. And underlying even an offer like that is, is the violence that they can be met with. And the violence, both physical and psychological. Psychological, where your, your labor conditions, whether you might be able to visit your children, um, those types of questions. Okay, Terry. Yeah, Sophie, you mentioned that there were over or about 150 enslaved persons' legal testimonies mentioned. Um, were there any testimonies there in their statements that really surprised you? Oh, so many. So many. I, I'm, almost any one of them you could read and you'd find something surprising. I mean, the one about the voodoo that I mentioned that will be in the Digital Humanities Project, you know, I, that was an extraordinary one because he kept insisting on the way that the, their female slave owner um, was, was treating his wife, you know, and I wasn't expecting that. Um, but I think also... I think the thread that comes through so much is is loved ones. Um, my final chapter in the book is a love story. It goes on for at least 14 years. And they keep insisting on, on, on their love for one another and how they try to, to, to be together in spite of having two different owners. Um, other than, than talking about loved ones, I think it's this insistence on... I, I, I've started thinking of it as it's almost like an intellectual critique of slavery. It's simultaneously insisting on their humanity, but also on the immorality of slavery. So constantly pointing out that, you know, um, you know, this Frenchman can do this, but I, an enslaved person, can't do that. But the Frenchman is the one, is this particular one, is the one who should be treated in a different way because clearly that he's doing things that he shouldn't do. And there's a, there's a, an, an, uh, just repeated insistence on on voicing their self their dignity i suppose is is a is a way to think about it and through that point to the fact that they are in court um and that they are enslaved that probably is the the thread that that sort of strikes me more and more each time I revisit one of these testimonies. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. Sophia, um, uh, in our last minute, uh, why do you think knowing about the slaves in French Louisiana is relevant in today's world? Because we see in these documents and in these slave codes and laws the origins for so much of what is still going on now that the white person can with impunity arrest someone or hurt someone who is just minding their own business and we see these uh, we see this tracing back and I'm going to end as I always end if you don't mind which is by reading the last words of the book okay their courtroom narrative lifts these individuals from anonymity even as their stories underscore the heart-wrenching banality and the violence of slavery yet here were real people who lived full lives we are the richer for having encountered them however fleetingly, and whenever they did have the opportunity to speak and have their words recorded, we surely owe it to them to listen and to try to hear. Thank you. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 462nd show of ROI, relevant or irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Sophia White, professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame, who talked with us about her book, Lives of the Enslaved, Love, Labor, and Longing in French Louisiana. The history bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed in this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>